Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, my business partner, the the ever-lovely Jason Johnston Yellen. Jason, three names. That's one, two, three. Jason Johnston Yellen. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Thank you. Okay. Well, it's been good having you. <laughs> before, be before we started recording, you said, yes. okay, you get us started. You get us started, and then we're going to clear the air. Yes. And I've seen you clear a room before with air, but I, <laughs> I, I just said- You mean talking to my kids again? <laughs> <laughs> they blame it on you, but I can't say And that. I blame it on the dog. <laughs> <laughs> and the dog blames on the boogie, and so it is the circle of life. So what, what air are we clearing? I, I feel like I, I walked into a room. I feel like Donnie from from The Big Lebowski. I feel out of my <laughs> element right now. <laughs> so so after completing a, a, a thorough internal investigation. Here's the name and number of a doctor who will look at it for you. You will receive no bill. He's a good man and thorough. Uh, that, that, that's thoughtful, but... Please see him, Jeffrey. He's a good man and thorough that has included a consideration of visual evidence Mm -hmm. and corroborating statements of multiple witnesses. My gosh. (laughs) We have come to the conclusion... CSI whiskey, yeah, go on. ...that Jess Lomas got four out of four in the judgment of Westland Blind Tasting. Yes. And and this this aggression from Steve Hawley will not stand, man. <laughs> it will not stand. So you started yeah. mentioning Donnie and then we got to a dude quote. So there you go. It's perfect. God, yeah, he, we're just we're just that good. He 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 was came in hot with that. I'm, hot. I'm hot. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Burning with the heat of a thousand suns. <laughs> <laughs> But but yeah, and and so here's the thing. So so Steve Hawley's official statement on the podcast, the Judgment of Westland podcast, was his recollection was that Christopher Hallstrom Sweet Scott was the one who got four out of four. Okay, hold hold on, hold on. Before you go too deep in here, for those that may not have listened <laughs> to the Judgment of Westland. What? Episode. No. There's a chance, I, that, Jason. There's a that chance. person Jason. does not exist, Joshua. <laughs> that person does not exist. So <laughs> this what, is fabricated. What, what Jason is talking about, in case you <laughs> haven't listened to the episode, there's this thing that that's called the Judgment of Westland, and it's been going on in various tastings uh, around the country, really around around the world, and with private groups, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And basically, tasters are given Four samples of whiskey, completely blind, and the the sample bottles just say one, two, three, four, and there are four whiskeys from four different single malt producing countries, Scotland, the U.S., India, and Australia, and the judgment is, taste the four whiskeys, and most importantly... Do you feel as if they're all quality whiskeys? They all start from the same yeah. sort of level playing field, but then separately or secondarily, the question is, can you identify which one is the American one, which one is the Scottish one, et cetera, et cetera? 
And Jess had said she'd gotten four out of four. And on, she was putting the pressure on us ahead of our own blind tasting. Uh -huh. And on our Judgment of Wesleyan episode, well, I would tell you what Jason and I got, but rather, why don't you go back and listen to that episode in case you haven't. <laughs> and, and so Jess said she got four out of four. Steve Holly from Wesleyan said, no, 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 Jess is wrong. She got two out of four. Mm, mm. And here we are talking about this photographic evidence. So now the listener is caught up. Jason, please continue. Mm -hmm. So Steve Hawley had made the claim that in his memory, Christopher Hallstrom, Sweet Scott, a nickname bestowed upon him from Matt Hoffman at Westland. Mm -hmm. but he thought it was Sweet Scott who'd got the four out of four. Mm -hmm. And so in collecting witness statements... Mm -hmm. Christopher Hallstrom conceded under oath yes. that he was the one who got two out of four. And he said Jess got four out of four on the day. Are Jess in Swede Scott this Scotland-based version of you and me where people get us confused, even though we look nothing alike, sound nothing alike? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say no. Huh. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. So so they, so there you go. So so when the episode dropped Jess who is I think one of the if not the number one Westland fan and and, and now we're going to start a fight cuz now Christopher Hallstrom is going to say, no, I'm the number one fan. But Jess is going to say, I'm the number one fan. And we'll have another internal investigation and, and we'll see what we unearth. But, but Jess is a fervent lover of all things Westland. And so to, to, be, to be questioned um, over the judgment of Westland was, uh, was very hurtful. <laughs> the, uh, there's one thing I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double back to in what you had said a moment ago, which is part of the judgment of Westland is not guessing the four countries. We've all just taken it upon ourselves because we're hopelessly competitive to see if we can get the four countries. And so that, that's just a, it's just a bonus extra. So there's, there's no prizes, there's no awards. It's just bragging rights among your friends. Yeah. And so, so Jess has those bragging rights. Yeah, that, that's, that's a good point. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, I came off saying, you know, secondarily, you know, this is the second goal, but you are right. That second goal is a self-imposed goal by <laughs> any is. of those who, and really, it seems like the natural one, right? You, I think most people <laughs> kind of want to know. I mean, doesn't that, doesn't that seem natural? to say, all but I, right, but where I is like, it from? But I still like Steve's point back in the episode when you and I got into trouble for trying to guess the countries before we actually judged any of the whiskeys. Mm -hmm. and, and Steve's point is one that we've been making in plenty of tastings, which is just let the tasting speak for itself. D do you like it? <laughs> like, don't try and impress me by telling me you know the country or you could hazard a guess at the distillery. Just tell me if you like it. Mm. And and we can have skipped past that part. Yeah, well... We doubled back to that part. We did. But we can have skipped over it. I just it, wish, was a, it was a ton of fun. I just wish Steve hadn't dressed up in his nun's habit to wrap our knuckles after having gone against what, what you know, we were told not to do. 
I, I, I wish he hadn't shaken Jesse's cage because it gave me a ton of internal work to do. Do you hear that in the background? Is it a cage being rattled? Sabres? <laughs> it's sound gardens. <laughs> rusty cage. <laughs> Beats a rusty trombone, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there you, so there you go. Yeah, so, yeah. so we wanted we wanted to reveal the results of our internal study. We wanted to clear the air. We wanted to make sure everybody was on the same page. And now we can get back to the business of today's episode. Really quickly before we do, I wanted to get you up to date, and 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 those that have been. Or I should say, those that listened to the Judgment of Wesson episode, during that conversation with Steve, he had said the average score for each whiskey was 2.9 stars out of five. So you had one to five stars, one being, and, and one is your baseline. Like, yeah, it's, it's good whiskey, but it's got some flaws. Two is, it's a good whiskey I'd buy in a bar. Three is, it's a good whiskey I'd buy a bottle. Four, it's a really good whiskey. I want Joshua to buy me two bottles and five. This is remarkable, right? So that 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 was the range. And so when Steve had had mentioned on that podcast that the average score across the three was 2.9, I want to let you, Jason, and our listeners know. So you just said across the three was 2.9? I meant across the four. I just wanted to make across sure you were four. listening. Yep. Yep. Very closely. Yep. I'm actually I'm actually transcribing this as you're saying All right. Right for uh, oh for the podcast uh, short story uh, series you're putting out. I, actually, novellas. I'm just I'm just I'm just a hobbyist stenographer. That's that's <laughs> it's as simple as that. I wanted to let you know that yes. I was scrolling through the Instagrams, which I know you're not on these these days, Jason, and I was looking at uh, our friend Dave Brooms posts and mm -hmm. some of these scores are now at 3.1 3.2 so more and more people are taking the judgment of Westland blind tasting scores are starting to go up and i just liked the fact that at least when we were doing it the the baseline score was 2.9 which was pretty damn close to i like this i'd get a bottle and yeah. i and i agree yeah. all four of them i liked them i would have gotten a bottle so. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited at the end of this judgment, whenever that is, Steve talked about getting up to maybe 3,000 participants. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I'm excited to revisit the, the endeavor with Steve and to take a little dive into the numbers and, and see what they're saying to Steve. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be pretty cool when that happens, maybe in the new year. Yeah, yeah, we shall see. Anyway... You were saying anyway. you were saying before I before I backtracked, you say to get us to the matter at hand. Well, I think as we're as we're sitting here talking about world single malts, today's episode is a hop back into the rum category, which always allows us the opportunity to globetrot. Mm -hmm. And here we are today talking about Australian rum. Yeah. Yeah, a, a, there's a little break from the norm. A category, and and, and we said this to Steve, uh, Steve Maggery, and uh, who's our guest today, distillery manager at Beanley. 
you know, we'd said to him that, that we as whiskey drinkers, and we can extend this to the majority of, you know, us here in the U.S., don't know anything of Australian rum. Upon hearing about the distillery, I was surprised it had a history that goes back 137 years. That just surprised the hell out of me. Because I think about rum, I think I think Cuba, right? I think Barbados, I think Trinidad yeah. and, and, and Fiji and all these islands. And I mean, granted, Australia is an island, but that's a pretty damn big <laughs> island. <laughs> As you learned, it's got multiple time zones. It does, yeah. Imagine that. Um, so yeah, so, so, so that was interesting. And, you know, one thing I want to point out, not only were, were we ignorant to the fact that Australia had or has such a a rich distilling rum history and sugar cane history, I mean, you and I are, are, are really coming at this interview from a certain level of ignorance on the category of rum writ large. And so, yeah, you know, it's one of these interviews where we ask a question and then we step back and we say, <laughs> please take the reins because we just need to soak in everything you're saying. Because some of it was, was quite, well... I'll speak for myself and I'll let you talk here, but, but some of it was quite foreign to me. Yeah. Literally and metaphorically. (laughs) (laughs) Did you notice he had a bit of an accent? I almost, I almost, Jason, you baited me. I almost got into my Australian accent. You almost got me into being slightly Aussie racist. (laughs) But I didn't do it, Jason. I didn't. I didn't. Eh? Uh, but, but but what do you think? What do you think of this thing that I'm holding? Though would would you call this a knife? That's not a knife. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you could resist one time. I knew you could resist twice. I tell you. I tell you. I I I think about this all the time. We had uh, Adel Rafai on the podcast a few years back yep. from Hello from yep. the Magic Tavern, and he taught us yep. how to speak Australian. Rise <laughs> up lights. Rise up lights. <laughs> Isn't it razor blades? Yeah, rise up lights. Oh, you're, I thought you said rise up lights. Yeah, rise up lights. <laughs> <laughs> it's like space ghettos. It is like Spice Girls. Uh, Space Ghettos is so good. Makes me laugh every time. But yeah, one one of the things I will say as as we transition into this interview here is we prefaced so many of our questions Mm -hmm. with, as we understand from whiskey, (laughs) blah, blah, blah distilling, uh, condensing, maturation, (laughs) storage. And he seemed okay with that. He seemed like a pretty chill guy all the way through the interview, to be honest. But, But I think it speaks to us at One Nation Under Whiskey taking these forays into other categories Mm -hmm. and saying, we are here to understand, but... Let me know if it's like the thing that I already yeah, know. It's yeah, it's yeah. almost like an easier way to attach the new knowledge 
onto the knowledge we already have, as opposed to just going in and, and saying, okay, teach me a brand new category. And, and, I, and I like to, to think of it that way, also on behalf of our listeners, mm-hmm. where our listeners are whiskey people, yeah. right? And so if we can take something that's already known amongst all of us, yeah. I think that producer then has an easier time delivering that message. And, and I remember when we had Richard Seal on as well, mm-hmm. and Richard Seal did a lot of given talks, presentations, led tastings with whiskey lovers and here's how I've kind of got them into the rum realm. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I, you know, th- that's even a, a, a producer, an incredibly successful producer, who's doing that as he's going around the globe. So on one hand, I felt a little bit awkward when we kept doing that. On the other hand, there was a, a, an extremely valid reason for us doing it. Yeah, I felt every time we asked the question, it, it was is it it was as if saying so normally when I go to Chicago, I take this road, this road, and this road. He's like, no, I, I see what you're doing there, but this is another direction I would take, right? The end goal is a fine, tasty drink. And we all start from some sort of a fermented product. Well, how do you, how do you get there? Yeah. And, and, and that's sort of how I looked at it. And, and I love that you brought up Richard Seal. So for those listeners who, who aren't familiar with Richard Seal, uh, he's the man uh, behind Foursquare, or one of many men, but you know, uh, him and his wife, Gail, uh, are, the, are the people behind Foursquare. And so if you're interested in Foursquare Rum, we actually did interview Richard, was that last year, two years ago? It was during COVID, I want to say. Yeah. Yeah. Just, 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 just go back. Have to check the archives. Check, check it out. So, I, I want, I want to hand the the conversation over to our conversation. But is there anything you wanted to add in before we let it go over to Steve? There is, but I'm going to save it for coming out of the interview. Oh, look at you! Look at you changing it up. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you are now our third guest on the podcast in five years to to discuss rum. And in a way, it makes sense because it's One Nation Under Whiskey. But at the same time, Jason and I have, have talked about this a few times. It also doesn't make sense because there are a lot of people who drink rum that also drink whiskey and vice versa. And, you know, I think part of our job as, as whiskey lovers is to also talk about the other things that we love. You know, we talk about mezcal all the time. That's probably the thing we talk about second most. And then we'll follow that up with rum. So my point is, you're the third person on to discuss rum. I want to I wanna thank you for coming on and thank you for, for helping to educate us. And so, so you're here from, from Beanley. And at least from an American perspective, your products aren't on American shelves, yet you're a distillery that's been around for 136, 137 years now. So I wonder, you know, 
talk to us as, as, as someone who's never heard about Beanley before. Give us a bit of the history of, of this distillery that, that goes back farther than any American I know would know. 136 years seems like a great history. So I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit and how, how rum started in Australia. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Josh and, and Jason. It, it's fantastic to be on the Single Nut Cast Nation uh, <laughs> podcast. Uh, it's an honour. So uh, when we get to Australian rum, it's it's fascinating. Um, very few people, even here in Australia, realise that there's 150 plus years of Australian rum provenance. Dates back to the mid 1860s onwards. Uh, so that's that was when the uh, sugarcane industry here was was burgeoning. Uh, there was cotton uh, growing here as well. Um, actually, in the midst of the U.S. Civil War, uh, there was cotton being grown here uh, in this region uh, to to send over to the U.S. to send over to the U.K. Um, however, cotton didn't grow too well uh, in our tropical climate, uh, and so what what did grow uh, at the time and is still today is sugarcane. And so off the back of the sugarcane industry, as we see globally, you'll, you'll always tend to see uh, whether that's molasses rum or your cane juice, agricole style rum. Mm-hmm. So here in, in our area, uh, the, the Beanley uh, Logan uh, district, uh, we actually weren't the first rum distillery in this region. There's, there's uh, three other distilleries that actually date back earlier than the Beanley uh, distillery. Mm. And so at, at that time, it uh, was definitely a, a thriving community, agriculture, as I say, there's cotton, um, there was sugarcane and other crops. And the original founders of, of the Beanley uh, estate or plantation, uh, they originally came out, immigrated from the UK in 1862 uh, to this area. And so back in Devonshire, southern uh, England, uh, they actually came from a... what their estate was the Beanley estate or Beanley Manor. And so they, they not only did they come out and immigrate to Australia, but they brought the name with them. And, and that's how the, the name has uh, established itself here in the region. And the, the local uh, city uh, here is, is named Beanley due to that uh, history. And so on the distillery itself, originally it was set up as a sugar cane plantation with a sugar mill. And so that was established in, in 1870. And so uh, not, with, with growing the sugar cane, uh, producing sugar here on site uh, and the molasses. And so at this time, in, in context of Australian rum, uh, there were several other rum distilleries further north of here uh, that, that were really starting to produce a lot of uh, a large quantity of Australian rum at the time and a variety of different distillation processes, whether it was single pot, double pot, a uh, single retort, double retort, um, mm-hmm. and, and there was also uh, one or two column stills uh, at that time uh, in in our state here, Queensland. Uh, so during during this era, when the when the sugar cane uh, first started in the area, then it was like, okay, there was other rum distilleries at the time. So we we, we moved to eighteen eighty four as when the actual rum distillery was established. Uh, here on site. So yes, we do celebrate 137 years. We are the oldest operating distillery in Australia. We are a heritage listed site as well. Uh, But I do want to focus on just a a quick uh, anecdote. From 1869 to 1872, there was this uh, ship um, going up and down the local rivers here. It was because the rivers were the main or the primary transport uh, 
on and off the farms and the plantations. Mm-hmm. And so this this um, this boat uh, was known as the Walrus. It was actually a floating sugar mill, floating distillery. So they, the boat would, would would moor against the bank and take the sugar cane on, process it, create the sugar. Uh, but on the on the back end of the boat, they'd be having all this leftover molasses. So what would they do with it? They made rum. They had a 500-gallon pot still uh, on, on the boat, and uh, so they were producing rum, and uh, they had a license to do so. Uh, however, what we have found over the years is the, uh, the very quickly they were, they were starting to avoid the excise tax and uh, payments, and basically, <laughs> run, yeah, original rum runners. Yeah. And <laughs> so that's 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 a, a, a great story here for, for the river that we're on. Uh, and the local region as well. So that, that's what we refer to as the Warris, as the boat. Uh, the bosun uh, was, was the captain of the ship um, that was generating not only sugar, the molasses, but rum as well. Mm-hmm. Wow, can only imagine how health and safety would feel about a 500 gallon still operating on a boat nowadays. I think that would be a, a difficult proposition for them. I, I, yeah, well, we talked to Luca Gagano. He wants he wants to do it again. So uh, <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's more the uh, the environmental EPA context might be more a, a concern. <laughs> is the 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 still that was on that ship? Is that do you still have it at least as a, as a museum piece? So moving, you know, we, we look at establishing the distillery in 1884. Now through to 1915, the sugar mill plantation was here on site. In 1915, it, it was shuttered, shut down, relocated uh, to another area north of here. Um, so the distillery, as I say, has been running since 1884. Uh, in the late 1890s, 1890s was uh, severe flooding through through the area here, and a lot of the original building. Uh, was and stills and equipment was washed away, um, and so that's and that was this that would be the still from the uh, the wars as well, mm-hmm. and so the old, oldest buildings we do have on site uh, do date back to the eighteen nineties. Uh, the the original bonded warehouse uh, was all it took three years to build. It was all handmade bricks here on site and then and then laid wow. and, and, and built. And then within that 1890s bond store, we have, uh, which is part, which is integral to the distillery today, uh, we have uh, four 17,000 litre vats that also date back to the 1890s. And then we have eight 22,000 litre maturation vats, which have uh, been, now been here over a century. They were installed in 1920. So that's, that's a, just a snapshot of some of the history we have here. Uh, when it comes to the actual distillation equipment. So when uh, in the 1890s, when uh, one of the major floods that we had um, and the distillery was, was rebuilt afterwards, the, there was another distillery further downstream here uh, and it had its distillery equipment was built locally here uh, back in the 1860s. And that was that equipment that was transferred here to Bean Lee. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, that, that still, or two stills, a wash still, spirit still combination was in production from the late 1890s through to the mid eight, uh, 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's very, very unique stills. Um, originally were wooden vat stills with the, the bands or the hoops around the staves, copper pot, yeah. Yeah. Uh, top, gooseneck, 
uh, to a basically a single retort uh, with a rectifier on top, then going to a shell and tube condenser, then going to a worm tub condenser. So a real, a real beast, beast of a setup. Um, and as I say, there was two of them. It was a, uh, as I say, a wash still, uh, larger volume um, component, and then a smaller spirit still uh, component as well. And that's that product coming off that that still is what's historically known as bean lead double pot still. Mm. And so we we have those stills here still on site. Uh, the wash still, the larger one, is uh, is really a museum piece right within the middle of the distillery uh, that operates. Yeah. Uh, hasn't been used since the 1970s. So yeah, it was mothballed 50 years ago. Uh, almost every day we walk past it, we always ponder and think what it would take to get it up and running again. Uh-huh. Um, because I, I've been fortunate enough to, to uh, enjoy and savour some of the 1950s, 1960s era Bean Lee. And, it, and it's fantastic. It is off this old still. It is amazing. Um, it, it's got real heavy, you know, Corona type notes. It's, it's rather unique. Um, but there's, there's so much there to explore. So... Um, can, can I can I just can I pause you here really quickly? I, I want to make sure I'm understanding this wash still. So it's the wash still. It's it's got the wooden pot. It's got the the gooseneck line arm, and then it goes to a shell and tube condenser, and then further condensed with with worm tubs. So it's uh, the, cop- the copper gooseneck goes into a single retort, and then yeah. above above that is a rectifier, which is very similar to the Port Morant rectifier yeah. from yeah. Demerara. If you if you get photos <laughs> side by side of them, they're almost identical, and they essentially trace back to the same uh, coppersmith pattern out of Glasgow in the eighteen sixties. Um, so from the rectifier, then it goes to shell and tube condenser, and from there it goes to a worm uh, tub. Okay, so everything prior to the shell and tube condenser, I, I understand that, though, in, in calling it back to you, I realize I, I missed some components. The part that I don't understand is going from one type of condensation to another type, directly into another type of condensation. I, I've, never, I've never seen something exactly like that. I've seen it where... And, and again, I'm, I'm going to use whiskey as, as, as sort of the signpost here, where a distillery like, say, Spring Bank might have a worm tub on the wash still and then a shell and tube condenser on the spirit still or, or vice versa, some, something like that. But the fact that you're going from shell and tube then into, into worm, do, do you know what the reason for that was? Yep. So uh, when, when we Good. look at the, the <laughs> when we look at the layout and the age of each component, the, yeah. the shell and tube condenser was retrofitted in, in afterwards after the original uh, layout, and the and the primary reason why is the condensing water, our cooling water, uh, the supply of our all of our water for fermentation, but also cooling water for the stills is all ambient room temperature uh, in our storage, our storage reservoir, our water dam. Mm-hmm. And so in the middle of winter here, uh, it can get to 15 Celsius at a minimum. And during the winter, uh, summer, it can get up, the water temperature can get up to th- a peak of 32 degrees Celsius. Wow. And so that's, that's it, that's, that's all we use, that's all we've ever used from a, from a, conden- a condensing 
uh, perspective. So really trying to maximise the surface area, the condensing uh, efficiency uh, to, to get that vapour uh, to, to condense uh, and copper contact as well. Like the way that the, this old uh, double pot still set up, at least since the 1940s, it's 100% copper. So there is so much contact time um, available and reflux um, within, inherently within the design itself um, that, that created this unique flavour profile. Uh, and to have that hmm. basically yeah. that rep, replicated, rep, sorry, replicated in wash steel and spirit steel uh, paired together, it, uh, yeah, it's very unique. Man. Absolutely wild. So, so you're, you're, you're basically fighting, fighting the environment. You just needed that extra condensation to fight the, the the heat going on. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's and that's that's the old steel. Now, uh, now if we move through uh, with Bentley, uh, it changed uh, profile in the late seventies, early eighties. Went very much uh, innovation at the time, going from this, these old historic double pots straight into double column steel. Um, so a huge huge change in the flavor profile. And uh, and then from the early 80s through to 2004 was double column um, rum. And then from 2004 to today, we have, it's very much um, as per American whiskey bourbon doubler type setup where we've got a beer column and then we've got the pot uh, separately. So it's a double distillation process of uh, a beer or stripping column and then, we, then that goes to our pot. Hmm. So reading online, I'm, I'm seeing the words vat still. What does, what does that mean? So historically, a vat still was, was a wood, wooden stave vat with the, with uh, the coils or hoops, yeah. and it would traditionally have a wooden or copper uh, top on it. Um, the, the easiest uh, reference today is the Port Morant still, um, Versailles stills at uh, Demerara. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's what I say when you, when you start to look in the history of, of what what we are, what we do have available on this old vat still yes it was wooden staves we've got photos to show that um, but uh, we also know that in in pre World War Two late thirties early forties that the vat obviously the old staves the vat um, timber uh, pot was taken out and replaced with a copper pot a copper boiler for the rest of the process. Okay, so there's there's no vat still being used anymore. That's gone. No, that lives no. in history. Okay. Yeah, so far. Cool. <laughs> well, unless <laughs> Steve gets his druthers over here. <laughs> Have you been mapping this out on the back of a napkin on on any given lunch, like how you can bring this back into production? Yeah, uh, new, numerous lunches. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, the, it's a, it's a, uh, it's it's a. Much, much uh, debate and conversation around it. So just just seeing if, how, what, who, when, what it would cost. Yeah, the, uh, the, the listeners can't see it for themselves, but every time you mention bringing this back to life, there's a cheeky little grin crosses your face and a little twinkle in your eye that I, I see the thing that, that you've got your hopes and dreams set on. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a piece of history and, and really unique. And and the thing is, as as we as I just described, our existing distillation process being that wash or beer column and then pot distillation, mm-hmm. we don't do double pot distillation. So we don't produce a pure single rum, you know, mm-hmm. classified yeah, classification rum. Um, 
And so we that that would be another avenue for, for the Beanley uh, operations is to put a second pot in to do double pot. And that's that's what we look at is do we do we go down that avenue or do we you know call back on our history and our roots and our tradition and, and look at what's sitting mm-hmm. right in front of us and, and you know don't need to reinvent the wheel. It's it's in front of us. So it's interesting for me listening what you're talking about this change in profile that occurred in the 80s and then you've got the early 2000s where you implement another change and now here you're in 2021, I believe it is. I could be wrong about that. But one of the questions that I've got is as you're looking at the history of Australian rum and as Bean Lee is known for a flavour at these different points, What's it like when you make that change? Was it a case in the 80s? And I've, you know, I was only six in 1980. But was there a period where Beanley drinkers were up in arms? Like, I'll never drink this again. I can't believe they've dared to do this. But then more recent history in 2004, with that change in there, how is all of that fitting in within Australian rum? That's a great question. Now, if we look back, uh, like, a, for example, of saying that our master distiller, Wayne Stewart's been here since 1980, so yeah. over a span of 40 years. So he's he's a great resource for a lot of those changes. And, and ultimately, it comes down to, in the last 40 years, there's been five different owners of this Beanley distillery. So during that period and those eras of different ownership, there's been different influences, different perspectives, and preferences, so whether it's the efficiency um, and volume, or whether it's you know high quality, low low volume. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's been a, a, a varied uh, ebb and flow of uh, rum style preferences, production volumes, um, and in in, in context uh, from the Australian rum side, if we if we switch across to another uh, famous rum distillery here, Bundaberg, uh, they. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they were established four years later in 1888, and they've always been a very big, aggressive uh, distillery operation, and they stick to what they know. Um, they're now, they've now been owned by Diageo for 20 years, but uh, they, you know, when you look at side by side, two different distilleries, and, and uh, how that profile differs, uh, or how they may align together. Now, from a process perspective, what, what we do at Beanley with the wash column and, and uh, pot distillation process is actually inherently an Australian rum profile. Uh, Bundaberg and also the third major distillery here, CSR Piermont, uh, which stands for Colonial Sugar Refinery and it was based right in the inner suburbs of Sydney in Sydney Harbour. Uh, their process was also wash column and pot. So, which, which all culminates back to the US uh, whiskey industry and that influence uh, for a balance of efficiency and flavour profile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it's amazing to me, and, and Joshua led this earlier with his question, but in knowing the whiskey industry and hearing the reasons for certain things occurring within the whiskey industry, it's really intriguing listening to you talking about the exact same words that have controlled flavor and production and, you know, volume. It's, it's remarkable that it crosses industries the, the way that it does. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing. Like I, I regularly get asked, 
at least from the international community, what is an Australian rum? What is, how do you define, how do you categorise Australian rum? And that's, that's the, 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 the simplification is uh, molasses, English style rum, uh, wash column, then pot, uh, then when we get into maturation, then it would be large format vats and then barrels or combination of either or. And that, that historically over 130 plus years, 150 years, that, that is the way to categorise at least the three major producers that, that have stood the test of time. Um, and that's, that's us, Ben Lee, uh, Bundaberg and CSR Piemont. When I think of more modern... And again, I do apologize. I'm, I'm always going to revert back to my comfort zone of, of, of whiskey. But when I think of whiskey producers that incorporate both a pot and a column, it's usually the pot that's, that distills the wash and then the column that, distill, that does, does the second distillation. And so... I'm curious if 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 there was a reason why the wash goes into the column first and then the pot is that, and 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 I really do need to apologize for for my ignorance. Is that is is that just inherent in rum, when a combination of a pot and a column are used, or is that something that's more common to Australian rum when a when a column and pot are used? Yes, so. Using the column first, it's really about the efficiency and getting larger volumes through in compared to a double pot distillation process, um, which obviously, like you look at your single malt whiskies, um, that you know, by definition have to be double pot. Um, and a lot of, you know, if you look in the rum space, your Caribbean um, double retort, you know, tile style distillation. Um, versus anything in the columns inherently going to be a lot lighter flavor profile uh, less consciousness uh, but it, it essentially it really comes back to efficiency and pushing volume through and then God, taking yeah. that taking that distillate and then putting it uh, into the pot is to just to really concentrate and capture that that uh, essence that is there and so as i say it really is a, a balance of efficiency and flavor profile so the Beanley spirit uh, that we've been making for the last uh, 16 years, since 2004, um, here on the system, uh, it, it's, and I'm sure you guys will recognize this, and a lot of the feedback we get from particularly out of the international community is how different it is, how floral, how fruity, how heady essentially those flavors and aromas are versus this, your traditional Caribbean or Guyana and Demerara type rums. You, Steve, had uh, had clued me in to a six-year-old Beanley uh, bottled. Um, Jason has the bottle now. See, I was going to incorporate Jason anyway. Uh, you know, this this one here, right? That 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 six-year-old. And so I purchased two bottles: one for me, one for Jason. Uh, is that 2013, Jason? Yeah. Yep. If I can get my light right, yeah. there you go. What, is, what does it say there? Trans, can you read that for us, Jason, so the listeners know? Uh, Transcontinental Rum Line, Australia 2013, distilled in Australia in 2013, bottled in France in 2020. So that, that is a US exclusive uh, with the Transcontinental uh, Rum Line uh, portfolio. Uh, we have here in Australia, uh, we're fortunate to get the Transcontinental 2015, which was more Europe. Uh, Singapore, 
and Australia availability. So I haven't had that uh, other than what's out the back uh, in our bats, in our barrels. Uh, That's so, very good. No, I can highly recommend uh, it. That, that the transcontinental uh, liquid is, is fantastic and, and what we see uh, in this is uh, more of a, we start to see the subtleties of a French oak influence and mm-hmm, yeah. versus uh, our maturation here is largely uh, American oak, uh, ex-bourbon, uh, but uh, we are expanding into French oak maturation as well. Um, and this has really been a highlight for us uh, of what secondary, essentially secondary maturation going from American oak to, to French oak and, and then how it's, how it's presented to, to customers and, and the, the feedback's been, just been fantastic. Yeah, I, I found it to be a wonderful rum. Um, I was telling Jason before before he had hopped on. Uh, I took it with me on vacation. Uh, my family went down to Disney, and I'm like, "What bottle am I going to bring?" So I brought the rum, and I got maybe four four to five drams out of it. And uh, and then my my wife and I agreed we should probably see how it tastes in in a rum punch as well. So we got to we got to enjoy it in a few different environments. The reason I bring this up is when I was doing a bit of research on the distillery, I saw, I saw something, and you touched on it earlier, that you have these large maturation vats that will mature your rums anywhere between two and, and potentially up to 15 years. And I'm, and I'm curious it, of, you know, we talked about the distillation side of it. When it comes to the maturation side of it, is it your practice to first house the spirit in these uh, maturation vats for a period of time and then put them into casks? Or, or are those two different maturation styles just that? Two different maturation styles for different products that you do? So, so with that, um, here at Beanley, our maturation volume is essentially split 50-50 between the large format vats and ex-bourbon barrels. Uh, we, 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 and inherently we don't have large volumes, we don't, we, we don't have a large stock um, and I'm rather jealous of a lot of the other Caribbean distilleries that may have 20,000, 40,000, 100,000, 200,000 barrels at, at their uh, fingertips. Uh, we've got I think it's 1,200 bourbon barrels and, uh, and then the rest of the volume is in these large format vats. So again when we go back, when we go back to Australian uh, rum provenance, what is an Australian rum? Um, again, historically, the large format vats has been always been used in some context. Uh, and again, that comes back to, hey, we're an island in the middle of nowhere, geographically, to the rest of the world. So, and we don't have, we don't have oak here. Um, so uh, the American oak is brought in, um, or European oak was brought in. And uh, so just a you know, cost of goods, efficiency, uh, it was a lot more cost-effective to build large vats, you know, um, versus bringing in, importing all the individual barrels in. And so not only that, when you look at the English rum history, you look at the Navy rum, like the, the docks back in uh, Deptford and uh, Navy rum globally around the world was always large format vats. So that's where that, in, you know, heritage and, and provenance comes from of of a preference for using those vats. Uh, and this is what some, uh, that we have um, a balance of. Uh, and it's not that we will specifically put a rum into vat or barrels. 
um, we can do one and we don't have a preference to go from one to the other. We, we And this is where it comes down to the maturation and blending uh, aspect yeah. for our yeah. bean leaf portfolio. We'll definitely allocate liquid to the vats. We definitely allocate liquid straight to barrel. Uh, we've got first, second and third fill uh, ex-bourbon. Uh, we do import the bourbon barrels directly out of the US. Uh, we have containers dropping every three months. Uh, I've actually got the next one coming in next week. But um, so with those fresh barrels, uh, we we do have them allocated in our portfolio in our program of what they will, what we prioritise. Uh, for example, the inner circle overproof rum portfolio we have, that's our that really is our uh, flagship product, for, particularly for the overproof range, um, mm-hmm. sitting at 50, 57.2 and seventy five point nine. Well, that's our first fill bourbon barrels. Um, that's a, and that's a, that's a five five year maturation uh, with a small volume of 10-year maturation. It's a good strength, isn't it? 75.9% alcohol. 75.9%. It just clocks over 152 proof. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So uh, coming back to the maturation side, uh, when when you look across not just rum in Australia, but you look across our whiskey industry that we do have and have built in Australia, we look across the brandy and wine industry, that large vat maturation is, is uh, it's across all uh, spirits um, industries here historically. Um, and and more, more recently, uh, because, again, because of our wine heritage and history here, there's actually quite a lot of large volume of American, uh, sorry, large volume of French oak uh, hogsheads, barriques, mm-hmm. um, punchins available, mainly coming out of the wine and the fortified uh, wine industry. So we do have these resources at our fingertips, um, and that's where we're exploring uh, some more of these fort- Australian fortified wines, uh, some French oak influence, and so just trying to to look at to look at what we uh, what we have, what we can do. And obviously, there's there's uh, rum industry influences out there that are that are doing full term maturation in, whether it be port, sherry, uh, Madeira, uh, red wine, white wine, etc. It was actually the the vats that I was going to ask my question about a moment ago as well. So so Joshua beat me to the punch there, but. You know, again, for us in whiskey, I feel like every question we've asked has started the exact same way. We don't know anything about rum. Let's talk about what we know. So if if we're familiar with, you know, the, the surface area contact from a bourbon barrel to then the surface area contact of a sherry butt, and we understand the interaction between the spirit and the wood, when you're talking these large vats, what type of volume are we talking? And then... I can't imagine there's much of any surface area contact. So what are you seeing in terms of maturation? Must you necessarily leave it in the vat longer? So there's a few different aspects to that question. That's fine. Um, so with the vats here, we have the, the smallest volume. We have 21 9,000 litre vats. Uh, then we have 17,000, 22,000, 55,000 and 65,000 litre Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, that, that's where in the last decade we, we tend to use the, the vats more of a blending, marrowing type maturation where we will, it, it just creates flexibility for us to be isolating particular barrel groups and then pulling them uh, from it and, and blending them and keeping them like, it just allows flexibility for us to have multiple blends available 
um, for our product portfolio, whether that's more of a, a pot heavier influence, whether that's more of a column inf lighter influence or a combination of the two, uh, whether it's the, like I said, for the inner circle, uh, which is our flagship overproof product, um, whether we're really pushing that back maturation in the first field bourbon as long as possible, then then we, again, as I say, we'll, we'll marry that and blend that together. Um, so, but when it comes to the large uh, format vats, so particularly down in our uh, distillery building, the heritage listed uh, part of the site, uh, we've got four vats that are 130 years old. Uh, we really, there's not a lot we can do with them. There's not a lot we can do to them. Uh, we do have losses. That's inherent with the age that they are and, and the design of them. Um, so we do typically uh, keep our uh, white, uh, white rum, Beanley White, in there. So just in general, for listeners, uh, Australian rum has a two-year minimum age statement. And so with our uh, Beanley White, we actually have a three-year three age statement on it, and it's, it sits in those oldest vats for three years. It's really, it doesn't get any colour or minimal colour. Uh, influence. Um, mm -hmm. It definitely softens, softens out. You know, we lose the volatiles, um, and it really softens and mellows out in the in the timber. Um, those uh, old vats, uh, but we're really not seeing any colour influence. So through that three-year term, like if you look at any of your Cuban-style rums that are in in essentially neutral or very light ex-bourbon barrels, mm -hmm. there's very little carbon filtration that, that has to happen after that. Well, and that's what we term it. essentially, it's, you know, drawing from the wine industry, it's minimal intervention. It sits there for three years. We, we do agitate it, uh, and, and but uh, there's really no color that we have to have to strip back out. Therefore, the inherently the flavor that's there is what you get in the bottle. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that all makes perfect sense. And then when we get to the larger vats, yes, that's there. Um, there's, a, there's other brands in Australia with, with their vats, you know, it, it, they tick the two-year box and, and the liquid moves on and that's really a, a volume game. Um, for us, the, the, uh, one of our vats is the 2007, uh, which, what, which is the volume that we've largely uh, exported into the European market, the independent bottlers. And so if you see the 2007 release available through various independent bottles, that, that, that is one vat that we have here. Ah, okay. And then one of the other, other vats where uh, we're actually distilling whiskey at the moment. So something a bit different. So, yeah. That's the next question, Steve. That's, you're preempting the next question. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll um, shut up now and I'll wait for the next question. <laughs> yeah. jo Joshua, do you want to take this one? Do you want me to take it? Whatever the next question is. <laughs> You know what? I've been talking more than you, Jason. What, I, I, it sounds like you had a question on the tip of your tongue, so I don't want to take that from you. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm hearing about the Beanley single malt whiskey. Um, how did that come to be? How are you working that right now? And what's that looking like for you all? Yes, uh, it's a great question there, Jason. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. And, and now... <laughs> Yeah, you know, at the end of at the end of the day, in the Australian whiskey industry here, uh, and this goes across again the, the the spectrum of rum and brandy. We do have minimal rules. That the two year maturation rule is is largely the the, the primary rule. There's no minimum, maximum size maturation vessel, hmm. etc. Um, so, and then also single malt. There's no specific definition of what is what is or isn't a single malt whiskey in Australia. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so as, as I recall back to saying that our process is, is a wash column and pot process, it's not double pot. So there's a bit of controversy. Is it single malt? Is it not? So I don't want to open a can, don't want to open a can of worms there, but <laughs> we we have uh, we don't have uh, mash tun, lot of tun um, equipment on site. So we do contract a, a brewery. Again, as I say, there's no regulations in Australia for um, whether it has to be done internal or you can do external uh, beer or wash um, mm-hmm. volume. So we bring the beer in. Uh, we did this first time back in 2016, five years ago, um, and then so a, quite a famous uh, brewery um, in northern New South Wales bought the beer in, uh, just went through that, as I say, that column and pot distillation, and then uh, a lot of a lot of that volume was then shipped, uh, tankered across to our sister site distillery, 23rd Street Distillery down in South Australia. Uh, it's about uh, 1,800 kilometres distance from here. Uh, but in saying that, um, we just happened to tuck a few barrels away in the back corner of the warehouse, and lo and behold, five years later, in May it was, uh, we released a five-year uh, whiskey, and so and and just absolutely blown away. It was awarded a silver medal at the IWSC wow. awards earlier in the year. Uh, so it was more of an experimental project for us so to see how. A, because our state here, Queensland, uh, quite tropical climate, it's not known in Australia, obviously globally, for a whiskey um, focus. We, we definitely are a rum community. Sure. Uh, so yeah. that's that uh, single malt whiskey. It's gone great. It, again, it, it's uh, aside from the, the yeast profile um, coming through, uh, it is a very, very light, very floral, very fruity uh, whiskey. And uh, it's quite different. Uh, it was 100% bourbon barrel aged as well. Yeah. yeah. And through the, as as you, I'm sure you're aware, uh, across the Australian whiskey industry, there is a lot of uh, leverage of the fortified wines, the ports, the sherries, red wine barrels. So we wanted to stay away from that. We stick to what mm. we what we do best with our ex bourbon, and uh, you know, and that's. That's essentially keeping it simple, keeping it traditional as much as we are able to and still call a single malt. <laughs> so first off, in, in, in your defense, the Pendaren Distillery in Wales started off uh, bringing in their wash from the Brains Brewery um, in, um, in Cardiff. And, and their distillation process is... It's a combination of, of a pot and a column, so and and they're single malt. So so I'd say you're, that that is that is too. Um, but but you're checking but I was the boxes. Curious, I'm checking the boxes. But um, you you mentioned the yeast profile. I know that that you have your proprietary yeast for your rum. Did you give the brewery your yeast to produce the wash? So is, is the yeast the same, whether it's your single malt or your rum, or are you using their yeast? No, just utilising the, the beer or wash specification from, from the contract brewery. And so that that was the previous, um, as I say, that was done five years ago. Uh, we now have none left. It's all gone. Uh, but our current program that we've just finished uh, was with a, with a alternative brewery, different different beer, sauce, uh, different yeast, completely different profile. So we've 
we have uh, an increased uh, large volume as well for us. So that's where uh, we've had a dedicated program here uh, for the last eight weeks and uh, just been just been 100% focused on whiskey. Now we've just switched back this week to, to molasses and, and rum production. And oh, uh, so, no. so that's, that's uh, yeah, keeps things interesting for us. <laughs> So, so you just set this up as an as an experiment in 2016, and then didn't do it in 2017, 18, 19, or did you have an annual project, an annual experiment? Uh, no, no, it's just uh, we've, we've just just reviewed it. And, you're, and, uh, you're like, the- that was fun in 2016. Let's see what the future holds. Oh, and, and so that the bulk of the whiskey that we manuf- that we made here went to our sister site. They've subsequently released that under their their brand gotcha. and it's sold out. So we we we've got traction in the market. We know the li- the liquid's quality. We know the consumer demands there for it, and so it's really the, the a key business decision um, from the company owners to uh, yeah basically tell us to put the foot down and make more whiskey. Wow! Wow! <laughs> So, so do you think going forward then there will be a portion of your year that will be the single malt? You're not going to repeat in 2021 what you did in 2016, which is say like, uh, let's circle back in 2026. Now you're going to actually commit on an annual or if you don't want to commit, that's fine too. <laughs> that's all being reviewed at the moment uh, based off the volumes that we've done, the efficiencies we've, we've, we've got through the distillery, the liquid quality uh, now really focusing on the maturation and, and how that's going to plan out um, and ultimately what profile that product is going to present at least in a minimum two years uh, mm. forward. And uh, yeah, so we are reviewing uh, whether we'll have an annual focus uh, or commitment to whiskey, uh, but inherently uh, all us here at Beanley, we're all rum focused and, and that's, <laughs> that's what we do. <laughs> so now that you've said that, can I ask you one more whiskey question? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so over those five years, having your, your American barrels on site and having your tropical climate, what was your angel share like over those five years? Mm. Oh, I'd have to go back and look at the records. But uh, in, in general, our um, angel share here averages between 5 and 6%. So that's, that's standard for us. Uh, that's, and that's in the bourbon barrels. In our vats, it averages around 3%. Ah, okay. Okay. So I, th- I believe it would be up in the 25 to 28% total. Yeah, but not too dissimilar to us here in Virginia. Yeah. Tropi- yeah tropical right. climate, as we discussed with Virginia Distillery. Yeah, awesome. This may be a strange question. You know, looking, <laughs> looking at your range online, I noticed... You know, you've got a lot of products that are 40%, and I know you do Navy Strength as well, but there were a few instances where your bottlings are at 37%, 37.5%. And I know, you know, Australia is kind of famous for um, draconian tax laws and, and such. And, uh, you know, I, I, I said it, you didn't, so you won't get in trouble. Um, but, but my... My question is, is that for tax reasons? Is it for flavor reasons? Is, is it, 
I hope my question isn't too forward. It may, maybe it started off as tax reasons, and then you found out, oh, it, this product works really great in cocktail programs and things yeah. like that. It's just yeah. these odd ABVs always uh, intrigue me. So I'm curious what you have to say there. So, uh, again, a great question. Uh, when, when we look, again, uh, aside from our two-year maturation rule for, for aged spirits, the other, one of the other criteria is a minimum 37% across all spirits. Mm-hmm. Um, so that there's a so it's I know in the US and, and in Europe it's largely minimum forty percent ABV. Yeah. Um, we're so thirty seven here, and it is largely related to to the tax uh, excise tax side. So at the moment uh, we would be paying eighty eight dollars a liter, um, so allow on pure alcohol, uh, and it is I think it's the third highest or second highest uh, excise tax rates globally. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so, and in saying that, um, that's that's all spirits. So when you've got your, your large multinationals, uh, say American bourbon companies, bringing their liquid into bulk into Australia and bottling it here in Australia, it's not bottled necessarily at forty. It'll be bottled at thirty-seven or thirty-seven and a half because they can. So yep. um, that's where you know, if I can, I'll go back to the bourbon industry. As, as a as a different perspective is some of the bourbon bottlings done in the done in the US versus bourbon bottlings done in Australia it's different liquid it's different flavor profile just with an ABV change which largely comes back to the excise tax that's payable yep there you go yeah I remember uh, Eddie Russell at wild turkey talking about having to do that and and he had mentioned it was for for tax reasons just to make the bottle a bit more affordable yes so it's it's and it's it's getting yes our excise tax uh is, is always an issue in the industry and just on that it's fantastic to see some news just overnight out of the uk that they've the government has frozen the excise tax over there um and it's something that the industry here has been focusing and lobbying the, the australian government to do um so we'll see where that goes in the future but um, the, the thing is, uh, with looking at the craft industry in the last decade um, and pitching higher ABV unique products to the consumer, there's definitely, as we know, particularly from the single malt whiskey, the cast strength whiskeys, and now rum, uh, we're really seeing that shift of mm-hmm. uh, higher high ABV uh, influence and demand for those products, and particularly for that raw, natural cast strength, as is. Uh, type uh, product. I wanted to switch gears a little bit, if you didn't mind. I had I had one. We always have a question we get out of here on, but I know I had at least one question before that. Hopefully, we're not. Hopefully, uh, you've got a bit of time. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's only twenty past eleven for the man. <laughs> <laughs> it's not bedtime for you yet, Steve. <laughs> no, I've had my breakfast wrong. Right. <laughs> So I, I've been sitting here, uh, you know, during the conversation, just sipping on Blacktop 50th. And and what I love about what's the new, the, you know, the, the new iteration is now it's the Master Blender's Reserve. So it's the follow-up to the 50th. And my understanding is, is it 12 or 14% of the overall new special edition black tot is, is, is Beanley, right? Yes, I believe it, it ended up being around 6.87%. Um, 
Mitch Wilson and, and Ollie at uh, Alexa can argue about that one, but uh, <laughs> I, I still have uh, I still have and lucky enough uh, to have the original sample bottle uh, that Ollie sent out to me for, for to us for that. Yeah. Um, and abs- absolute privilege that to be considered by Ollie and, and Sakinda and, and the group uh, behind Black Tot to be considered yeah, at that level uh, across the mm-hmm. rum industry to be in- included or considered to be included amongst the Black Tot blend. Uh, just amazing when you look at the rest of that, the you know, Masters Blenders Reserve back label, you You've got the Foursquare, Demerara, um, and everything else, Hampton that's on there. So it's just amazing yeah. to be among, yeah. in that same circle. So that's in the Master Blenders Reserve. Uh, it's a 2007 uh, that's in there. Oh, the vat that you were talking about, right? So that was a tri- that was 10 years matured here before it was exported into Europe. So, um, yeah, 10-year t- tropical maturation and now coming up to, I think it's between two and three years now, uh, with our uh, colleagues uh, Ian O'Shea in Amsterdam. So you've had the fiftieth. I imagine you've had the Master Blenders Reserve. Yes. If if anybody's fortunate to do a side by side of the two, th- there is no comparison. They are so like, almost polar opposites to me. Wow. Of this the, 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 the fruitiness that's coming through, and I'm not being biased at being Lee, but the, the the fruity characters and profile that's coming through on the Masters Blender Reserve, it is it is so different to the fiftieth. Hmm. Well, in in and this is what I've heard from not just from Ollie, but you know some some friends who are living on the other side of the pond because thanks to global logistics, that product is not yet here in the U.S. Where that'll that'll come in January uh, anyway. Uh, but but what I've heard over and over again is that the beanly fruitiness is unavoidable that it just it just rears its head it makes itself known and and that's exciting to me and 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 so so I'm so excited to that that you're in in that blend and 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 I love what you said there where you look at the back label and you feel like you're part of this bigger party is is that a is that traditional in 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 rum to to be like you know oh that's awesome they used our distillate in their blend you know i think i think some single malt producers may be a little reticent to to come out and just say that and i wonder if that is just you know hey uh, i'm i'm in the party now they're using my stuff no as i say it's a fantastic honor and uh, i think when you're looking at the black top releases the master blenders reserve uh, I think when, you know, the the ultimate uh, purpose, I guess, of that product yeah. is uh, paying respect to the to the Royal Navy rum. And sure. that's sure. when we historically go back into to the Royal Navy tot is there was Australian rum in there uh, from both through World War One, World War Two, uh, right through the well, through to the nineteen sixties. And so as you know, there was some of that heritage and um, that was part of the inclusion and particularly from Mitch Wilson and his time out here in Australia and now in the UK with Elixir and Black Tot is to see that you know, potential influence of, of the Australian rum profile and yes, it's been Lee, but it really really a great call out for our, our history, our provenance, what yeah. is Australian yeah. rum. And so, yeah, it's just, it's a fantastic to, to see uh, that all come together. And uh, as I say, with, 
the way that they've designed the products range and, and moving forward that essentially it's a perpetual blend. So there will be a, a percentage of bean lee moving forward in that blend as well. Love that. Yeah, that, that, that's very cool. And the, the final point I was going to make in our time together here in, in talking about feeling honoured is we're about to put out a single cask nation, single cask beanly at 65.1% alcohol, which in our conversation here and talking about the, the difficulties that one faces with uh, taxation in Australia, I feel even more fortunate that we are able to put out a, a 65.1 um, and it, it's now a 14-year-old that we're putting out uh, in front of the nation. And so that's a, a, a huge honour and something that we're very excited about. And so just in, in speaking with you right now, I'm, I don't have a bottle of our own Bean Lee in front of me. Um, I, I wish I would. I would crack it and toast right now. But... Um, the good news is it, it has reached the United States and it will be going out to the nation at some point in November. <laughs> Given global logistics right now, we're really excited that it's actually in country. No, that's, that's fantastic, guys. And, and again, it's a, it's a great honour. And, and uh, at the end of the day, there's simply not enough being lay anywhere, particularly in the US. And uh, with, with yourselves at Single Cast Nation, everybody needs more being lay. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm certainly searching it out so uh, I'm happy to have made the introduction yeah indeed but we like to we like to end our conversation with what's got you excited about the next year two years five years for Beanley you know you like you had said you're, you're the new kid on the block here uh, with, with two years at the distillery Obviously, you came in with with the future in mind. So, what has you excited about the future? Oh, we've we've got lots of exciting stuff. Uh, like just at the moment, we've got uh, a couple of ferments down that are just just ticking over two months or eight weeks fermentation. So, we're we're working on some long ferment, uh, higher rester profile uh, uh, product at the moment. Uh, if we if we look back into a couple of months ago, earlier this year in March, we released a product known as Flood Rum. Uh, that was a, back in 2017, that was a rum that went, underwent a, a f just over four-month fermentation time. Uh, it was unplanned, it was unscheduled, there was a, a flood through the distillery again. Uh, but that, that product and the way that release has gone, it was a distillery exclusive here. And uh, the awards that we've been very fortunate wow. and, uh, to win this year for it. Four-month maturation four month fermentation i mean 127 days 130 day fermentation <laughs> that's wow. crazy so and that's and so that's uh 100% cerevisiae yeast and so having it sit on the lees on, on the yeast for that long uh really has pushed mm. the, the ester profile and it really starts to get into that you know particularly leveraging our, our fruity floral characters we're really pushing into that jamaican funk context uh, and so that's something we're working on right now. Um, just absolutely waiting before Christmas to, once we hit the three month uh, mark, is to get those that liquid through the stills and see how it comes off both the column as a single column distillate and then the column pot uh, process. And, and okay. you know, it's potentially something there for us for an unaged overproof 
um, or uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see where the liquid takes us. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> and, and at the moment, what, what we've been working with, uh, with our, again, our wonderful colleagues at Valier, Le Maison Valier in uh, Italy, and uh, with Le Maison de Whiskey in France, is European and UK distribution of both Bean Lee and Inner Circle portfolios. So that, there's a groundswell happening there. We've had the uh, Valier uh, co-bottling releases with Luca, the 2006 and 2015. Uh, very contrasting liquids uh, there as well. But uh, So we've got a lot happening at the moment. Let's look two years ahead, four years, five years ahead. Again, I'll go back. I go back to our, our head distiller, master distiller here. He, yeah, been on the on the tools here for forty plus years, and he's adamant that the best rum that that Bean Lee is making is today, right right now. So it's just very exciting yeah. to see where that goes. Um, and for us, we we know we recognise from a continuous improvement process that if we've got any improvement to make, it's from the maturation side. It's from uh, looking at our first fill, second fill, third fill um, uh, wood policy, uh, looking at other options, whether it's French oak, uh, European oak, uh, whether it's leveraging, as I say, the Australian fortified industry with the with the sherry or uh, port barrels. Uh, Australia is famous for its red wine uh, barrels as well. So there's, there's a lot of movement there, uh, ultimately, uh, and this uh, this is what comes off the of the leverage um, and the opportunity we've seen in the European market and with yourselves uh, is is how how Bean Lee can execute a, a single barrel program. Mm. So that's mm. that's something that we're exploring as well. It sounds like everything's on the table, and that's a really exciting place to be as you look forward. Absolutely, we've we've got a few blends and a few releases coming up, which is. Just to really showcase the components in, in in these blends, and to really showcase some of the little little projects that that have been occurring here over the last couple of years, and and different uh, distillation styles, uh, and not that we do agricole, but we've got something uh, similar um, sitting mm. away in the back of the warehouse that uh, we're looking to use as a blending component, and so just really highlighting what. Uh, what we can do with and what we've got um, at our fingertips that, that basically until recently the world doesn't know about and and to that matter uh, if we look back some of the more recent history of being Lee back in 2002 2004 we were the IWC rum producer trophy uh, winner um, mm-hmm. and that, that, that holy grail is is what we focused on that is that five ten year plan hmm hmm and don't forget the your other plan of of rebuilding that old still. I know you wanted to that or the double double pot, but I, I think I think you know where your heart is. Absolutely, it's like I say, we walk past it multiple times a day, and, and it's just in, you know, it's just inherently in front of us, and, uh, it's, you know, staring right back at us. It's just a, it's a matter of what we do and when we do it. Yeah, yeah, that's. Brilliant. Uh, th- thank you so much, Steve. Absolutely. My pleasure. And, and uh, thank you for the invite. And uh, thanks to the Single Cast Nation. So the bit I was going to set up before the interview, which we touched on in the interview just a little bit there, 
there's no Beanly currently available in the United States. They have no distribution in the United States. It is available from other countries. Mm -hmm. It can be legally shipped here Mm -hmm. through a private purchase. But I really feel honoured that we have a Beanly, that we have a single cask, that we are able to share with the the online US component of the nation. And, And again, we're back to that spirit of collaboration that we've spoken about so many times before, where we want to shine that light back onto the distillery. And in this instance, even when it's not available in this country, Mm. but we hope that in the future, if, if Beanley does grace these shores again, that our nation members will say, oh, yeah, yeah, I had that one. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Yep. I, I'm familiar with that name. Uh, yeah, I'm going to revisit that. So, you know, there's a, you know, we're, we're not afraid to do some heavy lifting. We're not afraid to put names out there. We're not afraid to represent, you know, quote unquote, unknown distilleries Mm -hmm. that have 130 plus years of history (laughs) and multiple iterations and and multiple periods of flavor profiles right it's it's such a fascinating story with beanley and here we are getting to share it with the nation that's that's real cool and and a real honor Uh, thank you and that that second part the honor is what is what really gets me because you know they don't have to give us the ability to use the name, but we have the ability to use the name. And in a way, that puts a little bit of pressure, I think, on us because now we're ambassadors mm-hmm. for that brand. However, mm-hmm. it, it was nice, you know, after after the recording ended, you know, Steve was saying, you know, what you have there is some of our 2007 distillate, which, which is some of the, the nicest stuff, I think, that, that we've done. And, and he, he talked about what made that special, right? Using 30% of one kind of yeast and 70% of another kind of yeast to, to create this sort of slightly different, more heady, heavier profile, like really big, heavy, earthy fruits, you know, it was, you know, just this, this glorious rum. So, you know, the fact that we can use the name is awesome. The fact that he is the distillery manager saying, oh, I approve of this. I think that this liquid is great too, mm-hmm. takes a little pressure off of our shoulders, right? This is one of the things mm-hmm. that I love about collaboration with the distilleries we work with because, you know, we we know what we like. We know what we want to put forward. But when we're collaborating, it's important to us that the distillery has something they want to put forward. And then we come to a consensus and we agree like, oh yeah, actually that is excellent. And that specific cask is fantastic and works for our palate. So yes, let's do this together. I like that. Well, well, it's it's that funny little question that pops up from time to time. And we've heard it a fair few times over our first decade here. But why would a distillery sell you their good stuff? Isn't a distillery just giving you their knockoff stuff, the stuff they're not quite as proud of. Mm-hmm. And we've always said, no, their their name shares front of label billing along with ours, right? <laughs> right? If we give you a, a crappy Beanley, 
you know it's a Beanley. If we give you a crappy Glen Murray, you know it's a Glen Murray, right? Like those distilleries want us to put out the very best stuff. And here we are doing exactly that. If we, you know, using these examples and in any other distillery that we work with, it's good to keep in mind our name is biggest on the label. At the end of the day, it's on us if we put out a shitty whiskey or if we put out a shitty rum. Mm -hmm. It's not on mm -hmm. the distillery. So anyway. Yeah, but but it but we mean it when we say spirit of collaboration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Right? Like it, it's not just a, is that good enough? Is that good enough? Is that good enough? It's a, here's some of our best. Mm -hmm. You want to put your name on that? And us saying, yes, we do, along with your name. Yeah. Right? Yep. Yeah. So so thanks to Steve. That was that was brilliant. He he went above and beyond when he accommodated a, a time zone error and, and hopped on earlier, which which was great. But meeting him for the first time and, and feeling like the conversation was easy, the questions were easy, the information coming from him was was fantastic. Yeah. Yep. And and again, you know, and, and I know our our down there listeners keep hearing us say this, but I already mapped like how far is the Beanley Distillery from our friends at Backwoods? You know, mm -hmm. how can we get to Yakindanda? As it turns out, it's not a straight shot. We either have to go north and then over west and then south, or we have to go south and then west and then north. So, is the, is they're almost due west from one another. How many miles? But there's or how many kilometers? But there's no. Oh, a lot. Like it's more hours than you would imagine. Is there a plane from the Beanley Distillery to the Backwoods Distillery? I imagine those two distilleries have a, a route back and forth. Yep. Yeah. Private helicopter. Ah, uh, PH. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. PH balanced. P PhD. PhD. Yeah. Private helicopter for the distilleries. <laughs> well, we're not going to get more dad jokey about that. So let's bring this segment to an end and let's wake up the paper boy. <laughs> Before we hopped into this new segment, we'd ended our conversation off with this idea of a spirit of collaboration between us as independent bottlers and the various distilleries that we work with. And we have another spirit of collaboration that, that we're doing with the release. And actually, this is one that you took charge on. So I, I hope you might share with the listeners um, our collaboration with uh, Selway Bitterroot and a conversation that you had with someone at that organization. Yeah, absolutely. Back in August, well, let me, I'm, I'm starting at the end as I'm prone to do. Let me, let me start at the beginning. Um, listeners have heard the name James Foster mentioned early and often mm -hmm. on this podcast. And James Foster is one of many members of my whiskey society up in the inland northwest, mm -hmm. which is eastern Washington, northern Idaho. And, and one of our very dear friends who's a part of that is Moscow Jim. <laughs> and, and Moscow Jim is a, is a good, good lad. And... In retirement, 
he has really thrown himself into assisting the Selway Bitterroot Frank Church Foundation with a lot of their trail clearing activities Hmm. to such a degree that many, many, many members of the Inland Northwest Whiskey Society that I've been running now since 2004 will spend a week in the summer camping out in the Selway Bitterroot and clearing trails over the course of a day, then gathering around the campfire in the evening and pouring some of the most top-shelf whiskey you can get your hands on. <laughs> and so that, that, that includes a, a very dear friend, Carl England, and, uh, and, and many other people. I'm not going to start naming names or I'm going to be here all day. But one of the things I started talking to Moscow Jim about mm-hmm. was the idea of doing a collaboration where, on one hand, we could raise money for the Selway Bitterroot, Frank Church Foundation, Mm -hmm. but also give them a dedicated bottling for pouring at that campfire when they're out there for that week. And and Moscow Jim was was totally on board with the idea. He put me in touch with Alyssa Pearson, who's at Selway Bitterroot, Mm -hmm. Frank Church Foundation. We're about to hear from Alyssa in just a second to talk more about this, put more leaves on these branches. But it was so exciting. You and I don't sit around designing whiskies. Like we we like the idea. We we certainly love what what John Glazer is all about with Compass Box and and kind of what he puts out there. Uh, Our friends at Douglas Lang have done some some whiskey designing. But normally you and I come along, we're identifying single casts that are are worthy of, of a bottle. And as we mentioned earlier, worthy of our label. Yeah. We've got this Crofting Gaia here that has so many outdoor qualities, wilderness qualities, Mm -hmm. campfire qualities, that this screamed to be part of this collaboration. With all of that said, in August, I made a trip out to to Moscow, Idaho, (laughs) hence Moscow Jim. Um, He's he's not a Russian. Um, He's he's in Moscow, Idaho. (laughs) And... um, and so I made a trip out and Alyssa Pearson came came up from, from Boise, where, where she's based. And I think she'd actually been in the Selway Bitterroot in Montana before coming over to Moscow. And she and I sat down, we had a conversation and we opened the first unofficial bottle oh. of this Croft and Gaia. So, so here's the chat and then it goes into a little bit of a tasting as well. And then we'll we'll come out of that in a wee bit. So we're sitting here with Alyssa. Hello. Hello. Hi. It's nice to be here. Thank you. From the Selway Bitterroot Frank Church Foundation. Correct. In Moscow, Idaho. You and I are sitting in Moscow, Idaho. We are. Yeah, we are in a beautiful uh, whiskey cellar. Enjoying some company and, and whiskey and talking about SBFC. Yes, we are. Moscow Jim has come through and done a solid for us. So this has been great. Very quickly, what's your role with the Selway Bitterroot Church Foundation? 
Yeah, thanks for asking. So I'm the community engagement manager for the Selway Bitterroot Frank Church Foundation, or as I like to call it, SBFC. A <laughs> <laughs> little bit easier. Well, and I, I think in the, the collaboration that we've done together, the label has SBFC, but then the full name underneath it. You are correct, yes. <laughs> it does have the whole package. So talk to us about the Selway Bitterroot Foundation. Just, just talk to us about Selway Bitterroot. What is it? Where is it? Give us the lay of the land, literally. Literally, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well put. So we work together. Our organization works together with the Forest, Forest Service to help steward, um, meaning manage, maintain, take care of the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness and the Frank Church Wilderness. So the Selway Bitterroot is the northern section of that wilderness area, and it spans through Idaho and Montana. And the Frank Church Wilderness is just in Idaho. Um, and collectively, those two wildernesses um, are just about 4 million acres. And so it's quite wow. a, a large chunk of land um, that requires you know, a, lot of, a lot of work to maintain and, and provide access to. And so um, that's what we do, among other things. We do some really fantastic education programs, and we work to give guidance and support to um, college students who are looking to to get into conservation and join the Forest Service, become wilderness rangers, get involved in conservation advocacy for our wild places. So we we try to give them a leg up and provide education programs. So explain to me a little bit. I'm trying to get my head around, it's always the same question for me in America, who owns the land, who's working the land or clearing the land or maintaining the land, how does that work? You're nodding your head like you've heard this question before, but it's it, it's always strange to me who claims what and then who takes charge of something. Absolutely. Yeah. And quite frankly, it's pretty convoluted. Okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, a lot of our wildlands are public lands. They're public mm -hmm. lands for public use. And that means that, um, you know, it's up to the public to help manage and maintain them. Ah. Now, wilderness, capital W wilderness, um, is are designated areas by Congress. Congress designates these places as wilderness with a capital W. Um, and those places are stewarded by the Forest Service, uh, as well as partners such as the SBFC, who provides support to the Forest Service because, you know, here in Idaho and Montana alone, over four million acres, they can't do that on their own. Yeah. They have so many other things to do. So that's that's a little a brief overview of how it works. Okay. Okay. And so then SBFC receives donations. Does it? I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to ask this question, but it, it receives federal funding. It receives grants. What's coming into the coffers that allows that foundation to operate? Yeah, great question. We are a nonprofit organization um, funded predominantly by uh, grants as well as by the Forest Service. And our biggest uh, thing is is donors, volunteers, mm. people who provide support for us so that we can do these programs and, and you know, steward these areas that many people hold very dear to their hearts. Okay. Okay. And then how did Selway, Bitterroot and Frank Church come together? When did that happen? And and I'm even curious, who is Frank Church and, and how did he get his name on a wilderness? Yeah. Another great question. You're chock full of them. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> 
so initially, uh, very fun fact for you and a great, great thing that we are doing this whiskey here and now is that SBFC is celebrating 16 years of wilderness stewardship this year. So oh. for the past 16 years, I know it's it. It's fantastic. <laughs> so for the past 16 years, we've been stewarding um, wilderness and I use stewardship as just a general umbrella term for a, a million different things that we go and do wilderness monitoring, you know, trail clearing, trail building. And, and we send people into the remote backcountry, literally hundreds of miles from anywhere wow. to help ensure access is provided. So we actually started um, as the Selway Bitterroot Foundation. We started with a group of folks up in Missoula, Montana, um, who wanted to provide stewardship access to this area. Now, there's a lot of history and I won't go too much into it, but essentially there's large swaths of land in Idaho that are wildly remote. And so initially they were called the Idaho Primitive Area. And eventually Congress passed laws, regulations to turn them into capital W wilderness. And a huge champion of a large chunk of Idaho wilderness was Frank Church. And he um, was a congressman who did so much to advocate for wild places. And so, ah. um, the, the, the Frank church wilderness was initially the river of no return wilderness because the salmon river runs through it and its nickname is a river of no return. Um, and then, uh, Frank church got his name on it because to, to honor the work that he had done. That's very cool. I, I, I like hearing obviously in, in a, in a time of some environmental, um, issues, situations. I'm thinking about the drought in the West. I'm thinking about the forest fires in the West. I'm thinking about some lands being reopened to drilling or mining. To think of a congressperson who was a champion of the land and the wilderness seems to harken back to an earlier time, maybe a simpler time. <laughs> Truly. And I actually, I misspoke. He's a senator, Senator Frank oh, okay. Church. So please excuse that. Um, well, the yes. good news is you're speaking to a Scotsman, so <laughs> yeah. they're all just DC folk to me. Yeah. So no worries. But you're totally right. And it really is fascinating, you know, the compromises that have to be made between different industries and wilderness in order to get wilderness to, to be designated. And essentially, the, the goal of this wilderness is just to preserve these places that, you know, are so pristine and so remote and incredible. The, the craggy rocks, you know, giant trees who, you know, haven't been looked upon by people <laughs> in generations and really pristine waterways. And that's a really huge thing in the wilderness is these waterways that feed into, you know, the oceans. They feed the Columbia. We have a huge um, salmon spawning uh, uh, area in the Frank mm. and mm. they're really incredible ecosystems. And it's, you know our goal to protect him and preserve them for generations to come and, and hopefully ensure that that area of land stays beautiful and pristine and, and remote for, you know, as long as we can help it. Well, and, and, and obviously here we are sitting here with this collaborative bottling mm -hmm. where you're talking about issues that are not only near and dear to, to my heart and Joshua's heart, but also to the nation's heart. And and, and for us, the nation is single caste nation, but obviously <laughs> there is the nation beyond that as well. Mm -hmm. you, you, you've allowed me two tenuous links here, one of which is clean water and obviously 
you know, in Scotland, we have a saying that today's rain is tomorrow's whiskey. <laughs> uh, and so clean rain, clean water is important to us. But you also said something a moment ago that, that if we were smarter and if we were savvier and if we were deeper with our marketing dollars, we would tell you that we plan to have this 16-year-old Croft in Gaea to mark your 16 years. But if you want to talk about sheer happenstance, which is which is my favourite kind of stance, <laughs> um, we just got incredibly lucky that the number on our label, the 16, matches your 16. But should we should we open this and give this a little taste together? I think so. It's been staring at me for a while now, so I'm I'm pretty eager, and I am eager too to identify some tasting notes. You know, you and I chatted about it earlier, we did, and we did. and I'm really thrilled about having this particular cask. Because of its tasting notes, they seem to really resonate with what we're all about at SBFC and, and the wilderness and the forest. So I'm, I'm pretty excited. Brilliant. Brilliant. Let's, let's page Moscow Jim, who was a, a part of this as well, and we'll bring him in for this opening. Fantastic. Jimbo! So one of the first things for me is this pickled onion note. This is, we just talked about this earlier. We were having a Kregeliki together, and there was a very subtle pickled onion note. This, for me, with the Croft and Gaia, this Highland peat, for me, delivers this Funyun note. Mm. But I think it can also lend itself to a certain earthiness. Mm -hmm. And again, previously when you and I were talking, warm earth can become a very real thing in some of these whiskies. Yes, to me, I definitely get a nose of... Um, it's, you know, challenging to describe what a hot Idaho day is like to your <laughs> listeners, but very much that hot earth smell, a little, a uh, little boggy, a little uh, uh, dusty. I like it. I'm, I'm definitely getting it. I almost even, a, I'm thinking about you talking about clearing the trail mm -hmm. and thinking about someone's dusty leather boots getting warm as well. Yes, absolutely. That dusty leather boot and that warm uh, tree bark scent. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> that's your first time tasting it. That is. On that's the incredible. <laughs> so you're, you're coming in here. We are 51.2% alcohol. So for the chaps on the, the Palouse uh, and Mandy, who has been out and, and cleared brush as well, we're all cast strength fans. The mm -hmm. higher, the better. 51.2 at 16 years of age is going to lend itself, uh, it's going to lend a certain softness to the experience. But for anyone coming from a beer background or a wine background, 51.2 is still a, a real ABV. Um, we've tasted things in the 60s and 66. And so 51.2 has a softness that allows us to explore the flavors in there. So now you've had your wow moment and you take a second sip and uh, Joshua and I, the nation, texture really drives us. And so getting that mouth coating quality of it uh, is always important to us. And when I took my sip a moment ago, it's the mouth coating nature of it that I really love. But now you've had another sip, flavors coming through for you on the palate? Yeah, a lot of flavors that are coming through is a very um, smoky, mm -hmm. very, very smoky sort of, you know, s'mores over the campfire. There's a tinge of sweetness, but it has that smoky 
uh, uh, feeling on the back of your throat. Mm-hmm. How's the strength for you? Because I know you are one of those beer and wine people I that am, I just talked about. I am. <laughs> I'm a plebe when it comes to whiskey uh, drinking. But oh gosh, it's fantastic. I could totally picture myself after a long day out on hitch on, you know, clearing trail, uh-huh. sitting down, putting my feet in the cool alpine lake or creek and, <laughs> you know, enjoying a handful of these to, to dull, dull the pain of... <laughs> <laughs> forget your ibuprofen forget your tylenol <laughs> yeah, bring out a, a few of these yeah <laughs> well and the other thing that we always say to people is we bottle it natural cast strength but go ahead add drops of water to it mm-hmm. as you see fit as you're sitting next to that fresh running river uh, stick a drop in it you know you're, <laughs> you're not going to catch anything too bad from a single drop <laughs> just for the record Jason is not a biochemist Jason is not a microbiologist just for the record please filter all of your water that you get out of the back country I can attest from experience that is really crucial <laughs> but once you filter to boiled it add as much as you want <laughs> glad we got the disclaimers out of the way mm-hmm. um, and then on the finish uh, maybe even a little bit of white pepper just as it clears through the finish there Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I really love that. And one of the things for us in selecting this cask for the collaboration was with the outdoors very much in mind. What would it be like to drink this next to a campfire at the end of a day? What would it be like drinking this next to some warm trees, some dusty trail? Like that was important to us. And so I think getting hitting that nail on the head and and getting your seal of approval on this as well uh, is really very cool. You're enjoying the experience? I am. It, it, I can, it so complements what we do out in the wilderness and I'm so thrilled. Well, let's do a little cheers and this is to the Selwy Bitterroot Frank Church Foundation. Yes. <laughs> cheers to you, Jason. Thank cheers. you so much. Cheers, Alyssa. So before we get out of here, one more thing is... This collaboration would not have happened without Moscow Jim, yes. uh, G- Jim Heidelberger. We talk about him in the podcast. Uh, he's a great supporter of the nation. Uh, he's a Krigeliki guy, and, and we often talk about him as a Krigeliki guy. But he's also an SBFC guy. Mm-hmm. And, and could you talk a little bit to his involvement over there? Absolutely. Yes. Jim is on our board and is truly one of the most fantastic advocates for SBFC. I genuinely don't know where we would be without his support. He is um, such a fabulous human and um, is also uh, spearheads at least one volunteer project annually. Uh, lovingly labeled Whiskey in the Woods, (laughs) uh, where folks from Moscow and the Palouse go out to the Selway or the Frank with their whiskey and (laughs) do some trail clearing, drink, you know, probably more than they should (laughs) and, and have a blast. And so between his active volunteerism and his involvement on the board, he has done so much. In fact, he has put together um, some really fantastic SBFC whiskey glasses mm-hmm. that we are mm-hmm. drinking out of currently. We are. Um, and and he spearheaded so many projects and I'm just truly grateful for him and, and making this happen. It 
it really makes my heart sing to hear the way you talk about Moscow Jim. I've known him now for 19 years and and we've we've been on a whiskey journey together. We have celebrated together. He has been in my Palouse Whiskey Society from the very beginning and he's been a huge supporter of that. To be able to bring together two of his great loves, SBFC and the nation, really writ large, whiskey, um, is is so good. And the fact that you speak about him in the same glowing terms that I speak about him, um, I'm just so honoured to, to know him and, and love him and... Uh, I'm glad that we're here celebrating him while he's still alive. He hasn't gone anywhere. Uh, he was just here filming as a second uh-huh. ago. I, I'm really glad we can celebrate both him and yeah. SBFC with yeah. this. And Single Cask Nation. And Single Cask Nation is right here. Absolutely. For those looking for this, it will be $160 per bottle, which fits beautifully with our rubric of $10 per year of maturation. But in addition to that, $20 from every bottle sold will go to the Selway Bitterroot Frank Church Foundation. And we are very excited to have that type of direct collaboration and to be able to to feed some, some money into a very worthy cause, outdoor, nature, health of the planet. Um, uh, we wish you all the success uh, continued success uh, with what you've got established with SBFC. Thank you so much. I, I'm so excited to to hear feedback from everyone who gets their bottle. And, you know, for any of you who are out here in the West or who decide to make a trip over, we would love to have you on a volunteer trip to come out and experience the wilderness that our good buddy Moscow Jim talks so fondly about. Um, you are absolutely welcome to visit our website at selwaybitterroot.org. We're also on social media at Selway Bitterroot. And if you have any questions or want to learn more, please visit our website and feel free to shoot me an email. I'm on there. So once again, Alyssa, cheers to this collaboration. Cheers to your ongoing success. Cheers to Moscow Gym. Cheers to the members of the nation going out and supporting this collaborative bottling. And cheers to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. We're going to go drink some more whiskey together. Let's go drink. Cheers again. (laughs) When you brought this collaborative idea to me and you explained, you know, oh, you know, it's it's my guys up in Idaho and they they do this Guys and girls. Got, sorry, guys and gals, and they do this thing with this Selway Bitterroot and this guy Frank Church and blah blah blah. And, <laughs> and you were going on and on, and uh, it's a lot of words. Moscow Jim, Carl England. It's not spelled like the country. <laughs> <laughs> but all I heard was uh, charitable collaboration, and and it was mm-hmm. an instant yes for me. And I I almost I felt stupid not knowing what Selway Bitterroot was. So I never mm-hmm. asked. And so mm-hmm. it was so nice to hear this conversation between you and Alyssa because all of my questions, Jason, were answered. <laughs> <laughs> well, and certainly that was the goal of talking to Alyssa as well. Even, you know, eagle-eared listeners will have realized that in my introduction, I didn't actually give Alyssa her job title. And 
in the interview, I just left her to convey her job, her title, her responsibilities. And I'm still not coming out of the interview going to talk about it. So, But she, she was very cool. She stayed for the, uh, we had the 100th meeting of our whiskey society. Oh, right. um, because of COVID, it had actually been delayed since January of this year. Mm-hmm. And we'd actually gone on and had two more meetings after the 100th. Um, and so we kind of backtracked a little to celebrate the 100th and just had a, a blast. So the the thing about the, the Crofty is that it's got that little bit of pickled onion yes. that I always think of as being present in Le Chig. Yep. And, and to get a 16-year-old Crofty that immediately makes me think of Le Chig... <laughs> <laughs> we're on to a winner. So you and I just I need to throw this in there. There's something about Croftingaya, Lechig, and some younger Kregelikis. I don't know what they are, but mm, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. those three distillates I I can often confuse, and it's because of that pickled onion note. Those, you mm-hmm. know, sometimes funions that just seems to tie those three distillates together in, in, some, in some way, shape, or form. And uh, I'm always so attracted to those distillates because of that note. Given what you're saying there about that, that pungency, that pickled onion component, mm-hmm. we don't often do this, but would you mind if I read through the tasting notes for this? Uh, I know I wouldn't mind. I think our listeners would love it. Our listeners love hearing tasting notes. We need to do this more, so please. All right. Yeah. Well, that's good yeah. to hear. Yeah. Um, and I know you've just had the, the tasting that Alyssa and I did, but but here's what you and I yes. came up with. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, in addition. So, so the color is reflective gold. Mm-hmm. And then the nose opens with a delightful pungency. Parenthetical comment, funions onion bagels and pickled onion crisps with a hint of wild garlic around the edges. Mm. Close parentheses. Mm. Mm. But dig deeper and a softer side emerges. Parenthetical, blanched almonds, melted toffee and warm banana bread, which is one of my favorite things on earth. That banana bread note, yes, go on. Right, close parentheses. (laughs) Along with a certain favorite word of mine, fecundity. What did parenthetical you just call me? comment? Another parenthetical. <laughs> parenthetical comment. Fresh shoots, warm earth, that kind of thing. And then that closes a parenthetical comment. But then in italics, could easily be mistaken for lechig in a blind tasting. There we go. <laughs> and blind tasting, what a what a great component of our <laughs> of our episode today as well, right? Back to where we started everything. Yeah. The palate is oily and warming with buttered shortbread, fresh sourdough bread dipped in a combination of extra virgin olive oil and fresh cracked pepper. One of my favorite things to actually put on my kitchen counter as I'm preparing dinner of a night. And just dip in that and just munch it while uh, mm. while making dinner. Mm. Hints of leather boots. Then a discernible campfire ashiness as it transitions towards the finish. And then that finish, moderate to long with more butter shortbread, 
maybe snickerdoodle cookies now. Mm. Yellow or citrus popsicles, more cracked pepper, and a campfire ashiness. And then a, a comment, which is not on the label because the Selway Bitterroot Frank Church Foundation logo is oh, on yeah, the label right. to show yeah. the collaboration. Yeah. But but the comment for me is one for pouring next to the campfire after a long day of clearing brush. <laughs> <laughs> that is hyper specific. <laughs> and I know next summer when all, all my friends and, and, and more volunteers besides are out clearing brush, I know this will be a wonderful reward for them at the end of the day. It was so great hearing you reread those tasting notes, right? I've got, I've got, I have my little sample bottle o- over, mm-hmm. over here mm-hmm. and, um, and, and you and I will be doing a, a tasting video for it because the, the Crofting Gaia is going to be released alongside our Beanley. Indeed. Uh, and that will go on sale November 4. So this episode drops November 3. So if you're listening to this, come November 4, if you're on our mailing list, fantastic. You'll receive the links to be able to purchase the Beanley uh, and the, the Crofting Gaia. If you're in our uh, Facebook group for Single Cast Nation you know, members only, you'll find the links there. And I think the prices are pretty spot on. We've got for our 14-year-old Beanley at what 65.1% alcohol <laughs> it's a big boy but I'll tell you it doesn't drink like 65 no it's it, so it luscious it oh my gosh um, that one is 150 a bottle and then this crofting Gaia will be 160 a bottle however like you'd said 20 dollars of each bottle goes to the Selway Bitterroot Frank Church Foundation and this is going to be slightly unusual. We are selling these as one bottle per person. However, you can get one of each. So you can still come away with two bottles. It's just not two of each. Yeah, a 14-year-old rum and a 16-year-old peated Highland. That's, that's a fun little combination for the, the fall turning to winter. Not too shabby. Shaggy. Brilliant. And and I'll also say, (laughs) the folk at Selby Bitterroot have been so patient. We have been working on this collaboration for over two years. And we didn't foresee a global pandemic getting in the way. And we didn't foresee tariffs getting in the way. And we didn't foresee global logistical issues getting in the way. And so there have now been a couple of summers where they've been excited to pour this on the trail. (laughs) And instead, it's been not quite yet, not quite yet. But now, November 4. When will then be now? November 4. And of course, that is at noon Eastern Standard Time is when that'll go on sale. So just keep that one, not in the back of your mind, but in the front of your mind. If it's in the back of your mind, you may miss out. So keep it in the front of your mind. Yeah. Keep November 4 at the ready. Yeah. And and released to US-based members of the nation, if you are international and these are of interest to you and you have a friend in the United States, you are welcome to purchase and send to the friend. 
how the friend gets your bottles to you is between you, them, and the bedpost. But where there's a will, there's a way, Joshua. That's true. Where there I think is it was way. Shakespeare who said that. I think that's the will of that is Will ah, Shakespeare. I thought it was Shakespeare that just said, get her done. <laughs> mm. You're thinking of Shakespeare the Cable Guy. Ah, Shakespeare the Cable Guy. <laughs> Not to be confused with the Cable Guy from uh, Big Lebowski who says, I am expert. <laughs> I'm here to fix Dinah Cobble. I'm expert. In closing out the new segment, I just want to add that the US retail release number eight entered the country. <laughs> if you're listening to this in November, it, it entered in a couple of weeks ago, which <laughs> finally, like, <laughs> praise the heavens. Here we are talking about the patience shown by the Selway Bitterroot folk. And here's, you know, people waiting on the eighth retail release showing great patience as well as we worked with global logistics to bring that in. But the thing I'll, I'll say here mm -hmm. is keep an eye on Instagram because Elijah is going to do more banter about the barrel episodes mm -hmm. where we will talk about a couple of the US retail release number eight bottlings at a time. Mm -hmm. And that'll be a really fun conversation. The other part is we'll soon be hearing from Jess on the banter about the barrel episodes as she discusses ROW number three releases. So there's, we've got a lot of whiskey out in the world. There's no doubt about it. The other thing I wanted to say about this retail release number eight is it's about to get some of the broadest distribution in the States. That's good to hear. You know, I'm, I'm looking at the the allocations list here and with previous releases, you know, we were in maybe 18 states, maybe 20, maybe 22 states. We're now in about 28 states with this release. And oh, that's very, very nice to hear. And as we get more information, we'll start releasing that. I don't want to start announcing this state and that state because no. some states may take a month or two to bring it in. It's, it's, it's October, November, December, and distributors have basically stopped buying in product. They're busy trying to focus on selling all of the product that they ramped up purchases on <laughs> to get out. So rather than go state by state, just know we're in more than half the states in the country, which that, it, talk about proud and honored. That That is just amazing. And I want to thank um, our importer, Impex Beverages. Absolutely. Uh, of course. And, and and all of our distributors, all of our state distributors that, that support us and all of the shops and bars that have been supporting us and been ambassadors for us. It really is an honor that our name would be on the, the tip of your tongue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, just to highlight just a, a few things here. There's a, a private cask pick going to the wine exchange mm -hmm. in California. There's a private cask pick going to the Barrel Thief in Seattle. Yep. And then we've got the Wolf Island collaboration that we've done with, with Greg and Trevor and Alphonse and the rest of the team at the Water of Life film. It's our, our second collaboration there. And we've gone with a vatting of six casks mm -hmm. from a, an undisclosed island distillery and you've been pouring that elijah's been pouring that the feedback has been out of this world and i can't wait for for 
dedicated listeners, fans of the nation, fans of the Water of Life film, to get their hands on that bottling. Yeah, Elijah had said he he had done a, a tasting recently, uh, a big festival, and he had said that of all the bottles on the table, the Wolf Island was the only one that got emptied. People just kept on coming back. People were telling their friends, you've got to taste this. And it, and it just went away. So the fact that it's getting such a good response makes me happy that we've got 1,600 bottles to spread around the country. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so you can, you'll find that on store shelves. And if you see a bottle, well, look behind it, see if there's a second one to grab two. <laughs> yep. See a bottle, buy a bottle. Yep. yep, yep or yep. two. Excellent. So let's, let's let's wrap up the news segment. That that's a lot of ground to cover, mm. which there's ah, a lot of whiskey floating around right now with a single cast name on on it, which is yeah very cool after a long dry summer. So with with our intro behind us, with our interview with the wonderful Stephen Magri, who who we thank again uh, for for coming on and, and being a guest with, of the podcast and for collaborating with us. As independent bottlers, uh, we want to thank you. And, and then, the, and then we had the, this long news segment with Alyssa from Selway Bitterroot, who we have to thank yet again. Indeed, we don't have time to do an email or anything like that. However, we do have some emails to read. But I want to use this opportunity to remind people that November is here, which means. We want you, the listener, to start compiling some questions for our annual mailbag episode, which is really right around the corner. <laughs> so you know, compile your questions, email them in. You can email us questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com. You can always uh, send us a Facebook message through, uh, you know, just go to the Facebook search bar, One Nation Under Whiskey, and you can message us through there can message us through Instagram. We are at One Nation Under Whiskey. And we, of course, are on Twitter at One Nation Whiskey. So if you got a question for us and you want it for the bigger mailbag episode where we kind of, we, we tend to dig a bit deeper there. I we, say, do. Would you we do. We do. that? Yeah. I do. Um, then, then you can send a question in for that. If you have maybe a lighter question that you want answered between then, you know, you can email us one of those questions as well. So... Yeah, and when it comes to the mailbag episode, it is one of the episodes we look forward to every year. Any question is on the table. You want to ask us about doing the podcast. You want to ask us about life in the pandemic, how it's changed our traveling, what the company looks like 10 years in as opposed to when we started. Like everything's on the table. You know, we'll decide if you've stepped too far in your question (laughs) and we simply won't answer it. But but go for it. You know, ask gosh, if you, you want to talk Colhoman, we'll talk Colhoman as well. Like mm-hmm. everything, everything's on the table. Really, really surprise us with with the sheer quality of your questions. <laughs> I love receiving them. Yeah, yeah, that that's a good point. You don't need to send us a large quantity, but we do prefer good quality. Girth over length. Oh, is it that way? All right. I know you've been cursed in the other direction. Do you want to say it's always the penis with you? You just did, so there we go. (laughs) Jason, it has been 
an absolute pleasure. So an absolute, an absolute joy. And I will take no further questions at this time. Very good. Either will I. Thank you as always uh, for your for your banter, for your quit, <laughs> for your good question asking. And uh, I will see you this time next week. I'll be there. Or you'll be square. Cheers, listeners. Cheers. Cheers.